0: Welcome to the Untangling Web3 podcast, your go-to hub to learn insights and the latest developments in the wild and wonderful world of Web3. I'm Alec Burns. And I'm Jack Davis.
1: Tune in each week as we navigate and explore the rapidly emerging landscape of the Web3 technologies, projects, and ideas that are shaping the future of the internet. We'll be talking to the best and brightest in the industry to keep uncovering insights. So that hopefully we can all learn together on our journey to untangle Web3.
0: to another episode of the Untangling Web 3 podcast. Today, we're delighted to have Heather Lee Flannery with us. As the founder and CEO of Aquidium Health, Heather stands at the vanguard of AI, privacy tech, and blockchain within the health sector. Heather's influence stretches further as she's also the vice chair of the IEEE spearheading the fusion of blockchain and AI in healthcare. Heather, it's truly an honor to welcome you to the show.
2: Thanks so much, Alex. It's lovely to be here.
1: Yeah, hi Heather. It's really great to have you on. I'm I'm really excited. You're our first uh, kind of vertical specific show. We're going to be talking about healthcare today. So yeah, first of all, how how are you?
2: Very well today, Jack. Thank you. I um I feel very blessed to be incredibly inspired by my work. So it's one of those things where if your heart and mind comes together, uh, makes many days very great days.
1: Well, that's lovely to hear. Um, maybe something for us all to aspire to there. I think uh, in in the future. <laughs> Um, so, so maybe on on that note, then c- can you just give us a quick intro about yourself, your career? You know, what led you to the the world of Web three? That where you find yourself today.
2: Sure, uh, my career began at the dawn of the commercial internet uh, in the mid '90s, and I was a precocious teenager entrepreneur. <laughs> uh, started my first uh, web development software company when I was nineteen years old. And um, did some very innovative and novel things that were first in what was then Web Mm 1. And uh, my career progressed from there. And I I found myself informally diagnosed with the psychopathology known as entrepreneurship. (laughs) And uh, it it seemed that I was not destined to be a long-term employee anywhere, but that I needed to chase after these visions that I became irretrievably attached to in my mind. Um, but I did alternate between um, joining, you know, uh, larger corporations and doing some incredible work there. Um, I spent some time at Microsoft and had a, had, you know, some wonderful career developing and building uh, times. So throughout my throughout my 20s, I was always a, um, a computer geek geek. Uh, Passionate about this thing called technical progressivism that I didn't have a label for yet at the point at the time, but it it involves an irrational hope that emerging technologies can fix systemic problems in humanity, and, mm-hmm. uh, and I have that, whatever that is, I have it. And um, yeah. later later, I started calling myself an applied futurist, and uh, I've learned about myself that I can only work at the tip of the spear of change. You know, that, that's where I have to be mm-hmm. um, in order to feel that I'm living within my gifts and uh, making the best contributions I can. So uh, through, my, uh, through the first, uh, I guess, 10, 12 years of my career, uh, in the background of my life, so not my professional life, but my personal life, I had um, uh, very significant health issues that were a continuous challenge uh, for me. Um, I had had morbid obesity. Uh, I I used to uh, weigh 340 pounds, or uh, you're in the UK, so I won't try to translate that into kilograms, but a body mass index of 48. I had eight different diseases that were comorbid to my obesity. Mm -hmm. Um, Depression, chronic pain, hyperlipidemia, hypertension. I mean, I'll go on and on. Um, my body and my relationship with my body was a place of continuous suffering and my mind, my mind just wanted to soar and reach. And Mm. I felt that my physical self was, was a prison. I was always trying to escape from, Mm. uh, at the same time, I was also a caregiver to an elder Mm -hmm. that had moved in with me, um, and, and taking care of her and managing her healthcare situation was like another Part time job, administratively and emotionally complex and challenging. So, between caring for an aging elder that lived with me and my own health issues that were just a constant source of suffering and churn and stress, it felt like um, my whole life was about healthcare, whether I wanted it to be or not. Mm-hmm. And then I began to understand around that period of time that things that had occurred in my childhood. Uh, had affected me for the rest of my life. And I began Mm -hmm. to understand the sociological and psychological ramifications of things that are today referred to as social determinants of health. And Mm -hmm. I started to understand that health about a person or a population is about much more than what happens in a doctor's office. Mm -hmm. And And I began to become passionate about what kinds of complex systems are involved with individuals and populations being sick or healthy and why. Mm -hmm. Um, I I began to be fairly obsessed with these questions and and, and began my own intensive self-guided learning that merged with my pre-existing technical progressivism and landed me in this place of personal transformation and professional, uh, an understanding of what I was really here to do. What was Mm -hmm. my actual purpose? I think all young people are searching for that, right? They All of us search for that. And I remember very clearly when it all crystallized for me and it Mm -hmm. was this intersection of big structural change and emerging technologies that can do things that were otherwise impossible—that most people don't even know exists—it sounds like sci-fi fairy dust to them. Yeah. Uh, and so, for the last, uh, well, since about 2005, I've been on—I've been on this journey, both personally and professionally. It's—it's—it's it's, it's one. I'm—I'm I'm trying to attain wellness and self-actualization <laughs> and health. Um, I'm blessed that I have—I am now in very good health, and I have. Um, spent since 2005 continuously working on new approaches to address structural and systemic challenges in the global healthcare market. Mm -hmm. And that was throughout Web2 as a technologist. And uh, and then I can I can come back to your second question of how in the world did that land me in (laughs) Web?
0: Wow, that is I'm honestly on the edge of my seat. <laughs> that is such like yeah. a, a, a moving kind of story. Like I can actually feel the passion like resonating off you. I mean, there's, there's kind of that, that this Japanese proverb that life is all about finding what you're good at, what you love, and what pays the bills. The the day. And it seems like you found that perfect niche in between. That's probably why you've been so successful in your career because you're working in a discipline that is clearly something just extremely passionate. And You're leaving, leading the spearhead of this, which, I mean, it's, it's extremely exciting. Oh,
2: Thank you, <laughs> like, I am... Um... It is exciting, honestly. Uh, it's exciting for myself and my colleagues and our partners, and and uh, it, I I'm honored to be a leader in this field. But there are mm-hmm. many leaders, and there's such a spirit of collaboration and openness and commitment to um, not just doing more of the same, you know, churn mm-hmm. and burn, sure. flipping companies with venture back startups after one after another of digital health. Like the people that yeah. are that that we work with. Um, are committed to actually getting the thing done that no one has yet achieved. Because so far, population health endpoints around the world only continue to worsen. Health economic endpoints around the world only continue to worsen. The divide Mm -hmm. in health equity only continues to widen despite trillions and trillions of dollars in global expenditures in healthcare. So whatever people are doing, it's laudable, it's important, it isn't yet working, we haven't unlocked the answers yet, so the yeah. the people the people who are part of who I have the honor to collaborate with we all feel this commitment that you know we want to be at the end of our lives. Hopefully, that's a good solid 130 year long health span. Uh, looking back and saying we actually got some of the structural challenges, we actually did it. You know,
0: mm-hmm. that's, yeah. that's that's and- the hope. This is one of the reasons I was so excited to have you on is that healthcare is so universally understood. Like everyone has some experience with you know healthcare problems, some experience probably with systemic healthcare issues. In the UK, we obviously have the NHS, which in, in, in a lot of people's minds is on its knees. And it doesn't seem like the kind of the, the revisions that the governments are making year on year is actually making much of an impact on that. And this, like I said, this is one of the reasons I was so excited to have you on. I really want to come on to what you're doing at Equidium Health a bit later. Like you, you mentioned there, during the intro about this sci-fi fairy dust, and you know how you got into the, the the Web three space, it's something that me and Jack are constantly contending with. And I think one of the the most important, I mean, this you know resonates perfectly with with healthcare specifically. And I think one of the most interesting overlaps, which we wanted to get your input on, was data sovereignty and how data sovereignty comes into the world of healthcare. So first of all, you know, what is data sovereignty in your mind?
2: Well. Um... One thing I'd like to start with is the notion of distinguishing between personal data or data about you generally, which mm-hmm. could be with your bank, it could be with your ex account or your your Meta accounts or whatever, uh, and your health information, which under the laws of various jurisdictions are are defined and governed differently. So, so the uh, the, the information in your health record has a certain legal parameter around how it is to be custodied and overseen, shared or used or not. And mm-hmm. the rest of the information about you is under a different body of law in every jurisdiction around the world. Mm-hmm. But combined, this is all the information about you. Now, if the, most, if the information about you that is the most predictive of your health outcomes is actually not in your health record, what do we do then? Yeah. So, so, for example, the, uh, the information that would m- be most predictive of suicidality, for example, or relapse in an addiction mm. scenario is almost certainly, definitely not in your health record. Mm. It's in things like your social media behavior or mm. your location data or your buying habits. Right. And if uh, if you are at elevated risk of developing some kind of uh, some kind of disease, that is expressed in some analysis of a full sequence human genome that also doesn't live in your health record. Uh, then what about simply the zip code or, or the address code, where the postcode, uh, where, where you live? Um, in the United States, the zip code, a five-digit code, is the single most predictive data element of your health and well-being as an American citizen, wow. oh more than God. any other thing. Uh, and there can be as much as a 20 to 25 year difference in lifespan, huge gaps in infant mortality, huge gaps in access and equity in care, simply across a, you know, a, a few mile difference, uh, inside, inside American environments. And this kind of global inequity exists between low and middle income countries mm-hmm. and developed health economies. Yeah. So when you ask about data sovereignty, We have an opinion here at Equidium Health that all of the information about you is powerful and utilizable by you and others you trust in order to improve your prosperity, your well-being, and help you achieve all of your goals, including the goal of simply having vitality, energy, mental health, physical well-being. Um, That means you have to span multiple bodies of law. And you have to you have to change the notion of uh, the role of the data subject versus the role of data custodians like governments and corporations. So you, when I say data subject, I mean the person that the data is about. So so Alec, as you as a data subject, you have data under the custody of an endless number of corporations and governments presently. Mm-hmm. Um, you may be um, only somewhat aware of little pieces of your data that is actually under your own custody. Uh, in today's Web2 world, there are very few options and very little ability for you to express um, intent about some fine-grained or detailed nuance of a decision that you would like to have made about the, with the information about you. In fact, that's nearly impossible in most circumstances. We live in a binary. Off or on, opt-in, mm-hmm. opt out, mm-hmm. what are called blanket consents and uh and fundamental assumptions about what that means for your privacy, agency, and dignity. Many of those assumptions are wrong. Do mm-hmm. you guys remember the parable or maybe it's a I can't remember if it's a myth, but the story of the emperor who has no clothes? Yeah. Does that ring a bell? Yes, kind of.
0: Yeah, maybe, I know maybe, one. Go, yeah. maybe go over it again though, please. Uh, <laughs>
2: The uh, very old, you know, parable um, uh, Roman emperor um, courtiers are always, um, you know, sycophantic and never Mm -hmm. want to say anything that upsets the leader and so on. And the Roman emperor is standing on a pillar wearing nothing but a sash and proudly (laughs) giving a speech and everyone is applauding, you know, very nice, very nice. Oh, yes. And the emperor is Mm -hmm. naked other than for this banner, but everyone knows they're not supposed to say anything no one is going to say mm-hmm. that the emperor okay. doesn't have any clothes. Um, with mm-hmm. respect to privacy in our in our civilization our massively technological society that where the technology has evolved orders of magnitude more quickly than the pace of human institutions ability mm-hmm. to evolve when we set up the privacy laws that are all in force today um, basically they, sort of worked. You know, if you adhere mm-hmm. to those rules and regs, it was fairly reasonably assured that your privacy would be preserved. Yeah. Um, that was that was all designed three or four generations of technology ago. It's <laughs> simply not true anymore. The mm-hmm. emperor has no clothes and a, a strictly compliance driven approach where data custodians, corporations and so on, can comply with the law. And they do, mm. uh, but the law, because of the technological advancement, no longer fulfills those aims. So, when why would you look at an intersection of a technology like Web three, which is about ownership, about expressing mm-hmm. ownership in a digital environment, and combine it with privacy enhancing technologies? Well, because if if you don't, <laughs> <laughs> if, if you don't, you're living in in a world like. Um, do you remember Cambridge Analytica? That scandal? Yes.
1: Yeah. yeah, we've talked about it a lot on this show. It's definitely one of the, the best examples of, of what we're talking about, I think.
2: Oh, and how many years ago was that now? I, I mean, about, it, about it, uh, getting close to a decade, right? The mm-hmm. technology is only radically advanced since that point. And now we have generative AIs able to do the kind of work that you used to have to employ actual humans to do. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the point is... That we cannot persist forward without a replacement apparatus in full for the way that we enforce differential privacy, selective disclosure, um, ownership, agency, and empowerment of the individual over the information about them. That is the new new modern meaning of freedom Mm -hmm. in, in a free society. It was not originally because information just lived on pieces of wood pulp, but now our every breath we take, our heartbeat, every single place we go, every item that we purchase, every person that we talk to or message or anything, it all is part of a digital uh, a, a, a digital halo that surrounds us, or maybe not a halo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, you know we're generating terabytes of information simply mm. by existing in society that information can be used against us mm. we can use it to our own ends it's possible but that is a that is a coalescing of power around the individual that can only occur with structural change and web3 mm. is in the, at the heart of those values and that vision
1: yeah that, i mean it's so interesting that you you, you took it that way because I wasn't sure which way the uh, analogy with the emperor has no clothes is going to go because I was thinking it feels a lot like being that, maybe not the emperor, but a person with no clothes on digitally online, right? Because everyone knows everything about you. We've given up our data um, and people weren't telling us because they were profiting from it, right? It wasn't because they didn't want to not upset us. So I wasn't sure which way that was going, but it's it, it's really, it's, it's I like the way you described that. So if we're in this situation now where you know, we've su- essentially submitted ourselves with all this information to all these corporations. You said, you know, it's under the jurisdiction of hundreds, potentially across the world. How how does Web3 take us back? Is it a case of, uh, you know, taking our data back away? So removing access to those sites or is it about, you know, um, enforcing rights? I'm, I'm kind of because when people talk about data sovereignty, I often wonder how can we go back from, how can we come back from the position we find ourselves in now? And in what sense do you think Web3 is, 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 can take us back, if, if, if at all?
2: Yeah, thank you, Jack. Let me answer that by first saying a couple of things that we can't do and that are a waste of time to talk about. We're not Luddites, and we're not going to roll back the digitization of society. That means corporations are not going to stop storing and processing and using information about them in the conduct of commerce and other Mm -hmm. societal activities. That's Uh not going away. Mm -hmm. Uh, So so what what we can and must do with respect to uh, the way information about us is processed, we must implement layers of control and policy enforcement that live in the data custodian's infrastructure, but face individuals, where they can express granular intent that then is actually implementable by that corporation, not just opting in or opting out. But for example, yes, I permit specifically these pieces of information to be used by this party for this purpose within this time frame. Mm-hmm. I am I am a verified identity that is committing to that. And I am willing to have this data used that way and that is that is part of it so that's an apparatus that gets that needs to be part of the it infrastructure of every corporation and government in the world but there's a second step that's absolutely critical because just as we will not de-digitize human civilization we also have to create a new class of infrastructure around the person so essentially a human being in this radically technological society also needs to have a, a way to coalesce, aggregate, and custody their personal data estate. Not, I'm not talking about expressing their intent in data sharded all, all over the economy, that's important. But mm-hmm. you must also be able to receive a copy of the information about you so your own self-sovereign AIs can act upon it in complete privacy so that you can determine where that information goes, what it is aggregated with and more. So Mm -hmm. so I call that a personal data estate as opposed to an enterprise data estate. The ability to govern that personal data estate is the first step toward monetizing that personal data estate. So right now, all of the information about us is being de-identified, but the emperor has no clothes. So again, our privacy is not actually being protected even though those transactions are technically compliant. Our mm-hmm. information is being de-identified and brokered at large um, to, to uh, in an opaque market that, that has very little price transparency where par- parties other than ourselves are profiting substantially over the trade of information about us We have to bring the individual into a data economy and take a data economy that is today toxic, opaque, off-market, decreasingly legal, barely legal, Mm -hmm. into a bioethically intentional, verifiably compliant, inclusive, respectful data economy where the individual is an economic participant. This does not Mm -hmm. mean data brokering comes to a screeching halt. On the contrary, the quality of data can be radically improved when an individual consents to work with identified data. De-identified data means it's stripped of its longitudinality. It's stripped Mm -hmm. of its quality in order to preserve privacy, which no longer works because people can buy data from 15 different brokers and put it all together and create your digital twin that you don't even know about. (laughs) So... Yeah, go ahead.
0: I was gonna say, so when you um I mean you described this this future world state and it sounds perfect. I don't see it sounds like ideal, basically. Um I mean, but also on the other hand, the technologies have been around for a while. Haven't the underpinning technologies that would enable this future been around for a while? And you could make the argument, okay, well, there's been outside interests that prevented the need for these technologies because of you know data silos and all this kind of stuff. Are there any disadvantages you see to this kind of paradigm shift that that could maybe inhibit its development? I mean, the reason I bring this up is because you mentioned some of the user experience stuff, the idea of users saying, you know, you can potentially use this subset data subset of data for this amount of time in these. um, specific, uh, I don't know, use cases, for example. Are there things of that nature that you see that might maybe limit the kind of deployment?
2: I think of them more as opportunities, Alec. (laughs) Uh, So so if you were to stop at what I've already been describing, then you would end Mm. up in a situation where an individual person has a smartphone, which people all the way down into into the most severe levels of poverty on our planet earth often now have smartphones would be getting dozens hundreds perhaps thousands of requests to use their data that all have different contexts and details connected to those requests even if let's say each one was 15 cents or a dollar 25 or some nominal micro fee it would quickly you know with success you would quickly outstrip any 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 person's attention span uh, mm. with, with processing all of that. There yeah. are some like if you think about the stock market, there are day traders. There are people that do nothing but sit and flip stocks all day long to make you know a, a fraction of a basis point off a three-second float or something. <laughs> uh, and there probably will be those people in in this new data economy. Mm. But I would argue, and I'm sure you agree, it's a tiny fraction. Most of us Mm. have other things to do, other things (laughs) we want to do. And if we wanna monetize our personal data estate, what that means is that just like data sovereignty, we also need AI sovereignty. Mm. We need to be able to use artificial intelligences that we know and trust and AIs that have no conflict of interest. Mm. That's not available to us today. Right now, you are able to use AI tools, and they're being used on you, for sure. (laughs) Uh, But you are not aware of what data it was trained on. You don't control that tool. Data sovereignty is critical for the purpose of having self-sovereign AI. The self-sovereign AI is how the monetization happens, how the value is created, how the thousands and thousands of micro optimizations throughout your life become possible because of self-sovereign AI acting on your personal data estate that you can coalesce, aggregate, curate. And that AI, part of that is that monetization, but it's optimization across thousands of constantly growing variables. That's the, that's this intersectionality between web three and privacy tech and blockchain uh uh, and and uh data data decentralization and federation um what this addition into the mix of technologies means is that we could start to generate something that was like a free market alternative to a universal basic income uh Mm -hmm. we we uh In order to trust a self-sovereign AI, we have to know how it was explained. We have to know how it was trained. That means Mm -hmm. you need full track and trace on the entire ML training data pipeline. That's part of the same infrastructure. Um, When you want an AI to perform an inference or to do some kind of compute, you need to know what data did it take in at exactly that time and, and, and how did it function. All of those things mean... And then the the differential privacy and selective disclosure over the information, that triad, is how all of this can be made real. Mm -hmm. And we don't need to speak too much about payments and incentives, because I'm sure you've addressed that comprehensively uh, on the show generally, but it applies to healthcare and life sciences as much as to any other industry segment. And depending on how you cut it, this is the largest part of the global economy. When you consider how much of the total budget of most nations is healthcare mm. on Earth? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so the um, the economic volume is absolutely there, and by mm. including the person uh, with agency, dignity, and privacy in the processes to involve to evolve into their own optimal healthy state, which includes prosperity. You cannot talk about health without talking about prosperity, uh, because poverty and 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 poor health um, are are. Yeah. Their connection is not controversial at all, yet the way that mm. we talk about intervening in populations often disregards the need to optimize for prosperity as well mm. as for health. For example, helping someone who's unemployed find a job or who, who finds a job but can't get transportation. Yeah. You see where I'm going with that. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Well,
1: that was fantastic. I I just had a great time listening to that because I really do think you've you've validated the entire thesis of of our <laughs> podcast so far because these are all things we've been talking about but just from our, our bedrooms kind of wondering i wonder if people really <laughs> really taking this seriously and you know you, you talked about a number of different things that i just want to kind of recap you know the micropayment side being the fuel of this data economy that you're talking about and um you know one follow-up question i'd have maybe later is kind of about who who do you who do you see paying for the data in that context but you also mentioned ai right and i for us web3 is very much this intersection you use that word too of blockchain micropayments ai and this idea of your um your kind of self-sovereign ai is super interesting because i've I've seen a lot of people playing around with um the llama model which you can actually download and run on your own computer you can basically run a, a large language model offline just trained on your own files and things which is so interesting so yeah in addition to that first follow-up about who do you see paying for the micropayments i also i'm wondering who do you think will be running those ai models is that something you'll be running on your smartphone on your data or is it something you're going to outsource to these companies but on a permission basis to, to give them the training data i'm kind of curious to see how you see that working
2: okay let me take that in a couple of parts um i'm gonna begin with the end uh, that you just mentioned uh so our our vision, and, and we imagine this will be competitive. We won't be the only company doing this, uh, but but there is a new um, a new product category effectively that would that needs to be the the ability for an individual to manage a self sovereign personal data estate that begins with self sovereign identity, moves to data sovereignty, and graduates into self sovereign AI, which is the the, the actual the, the higher value prop realizing just having lots and lots of data that you can sift through manually. <laughs> so what? Who's going to do that? There's no value. The value is in the the brilliance and the rapidly expanding uses of AI that can be made sovereign to the individual and removed from conflicts of interest on, mm-hmm. on, on how they work. So so. Yes, some compute will happen on your phone and or at the edge, but the volume of data, we're talking about big data, truly big data where N equals one or you're a series of one, big data about you, that implicates cloud. Uh, that means mm. you, have to, you have to come up with a trust and governance model that allows you, the individual, to trust a cloud service provider, say Microsoft Azure. Uh, and then the architecture in the background is such that you control... You, you control both the privacy and the access of cloud accounts, not that dissimilarly from the way a major corporation does. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows that all the major corporations use separate cloud tenants on, on their entire infrastructure, and they don't you know, lose sleep at night worrying if corporation one, there is, there is such a thing called leakage, data leakage that people worry about, but, but essentially it's a solved problem. It's just mm. not a solved problem that has been applied to individuals as entities, mm-hmm. and that that is that needs to come about. That's part of Equitium Health strategy. Uh, the then you asked Jack a really insightful question of where where's the buy side of this new data economy. Well, uh, I would suggest that in healthcare and life sciences, we need to look no further than the enormous spend that is going on in data procurement every day, all day in our current Web2 world. Um, Mm -hmm. So, For example, you may have heard uh, a pharmaceutical company may spend multiple billions, over a billion, developing a drug that that finally gets to market. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't tend to think of that in terms of data procurement. Mm. We think about it like, oh, you're running a clinical trial. What is a clinical trial actually? What's the output of a clinical trial? It's a very it's a very particular, very structured data set that was captured under very particular rules that all have to do with verifiability, integrity, trust, and immutability. Hmm.
1: <laughs> I see where you're going.
2: Sound interesting <laughs> to all of you web3 folks out there? Uh, <laughs> and, so, and it's so if a clinical trial is recast as a data procurement to the tune of hundreds of billion, hundreds of millions of dollars. And then the trial itself often can't recruit participants, has problems with diversity, equity, and, and inclusion. So if you applied the ideas of decentralized clinical trials, bringing clinical research to the masses in something called clinical research as a care option. C-R-A-A-C-O, or CRACO, or C-R-A-C-O. Unleash the Kraken, but it's (laughs) Unleash the Kraken. Uh, So when you combine this with the ideas of decentralized trials and this whole technological underpinning we've been talking about, you can radically accelerate, improve the quality, lower the cost, and improve Mm -hmm. access to clinical research Mm -hmm. globally. And it's not just the conduct of a trial itself. A pharmaceutical company will, will buy data for market research purposes, just to help them design a research protocol or figure out where to figure out how to learn about the patients who have the disease Mm -hmm. they're targeting. This is already many, many billions in expenditure where not $1 of that is, is accrued to the data subjects. Mm. And, uh, And then every other kind of research has research sponsors, public health, health economic, patient-centered outcomes research, market research writ large, Mm. everybody's buying data. No one has the ability to buy it direct from the data subject. That means all data procurements are retrospective. What if we could flip the script and open the door to prospective longitudinal data procurement inclusive of the data subject, meaning now we want you to get your 10,000 steps in. Now we want you to adhere to this protocol to take the Mm -hmm. the doctor prescribed or the physician prescribed medication. And all of that data was trustworthy, immutable, connected to verified identities about the individual, the provider, devices at the edge. This is the heart of how that transformation can occur. And there is already so much capital flowing into this market. And it is so capital inefficient. Mm -hmm. No stakeholder is satisfied with the current state. Hmm. So we're very bullish that we're going to be able to get the pieces lined up to activate this new approach.
0: I mean, I'm sold. Take my money. I think (laughs) um, (laughs) what I actually want to know is so Equidium Health then. It seems like you're going to play a pivotal role in all of this, but can you tell us a little bit about Equidium Health, what the aims are, where you're at now? Like, this is so exciting. I just want to know as much information as possible. <laughs> Give us a pitch deck, please.
2: <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. If you want to invest, let me know. Uh, yeah, the, uh, we are a commercially independent spin-off from the largest Ethereum software company called Consensus, spelled with a Y. Mm-hmm. You're yeah. you're probably you're probably familiar. Very, very with Consen- familiar, yeah. yeah. We started our life as Consensus Health, <laughs> and uh, and then we rebranded to Equidium Health. Uh, Equitium is a play on health equity and data liquidity, powered by Ethereum. So if you hear <laughs> the sounds, it was a custom designed word uh, to <laughs> evoke all of those ideas. Um, <laughs> if you look at our website, you'll notice a very particular icon. That's called the Quitty, And okay. uh, in the future, our vision is that the Quitty will appear across digital experiences like a trust mark. In the U.S., there is the USDA organic logo. It's this green mm-hmm. circle that marks things in the food supply as having mm-hmm. been created okay. under that. We want that to become a trust mark that every citizen of every nation is able to engage in digital experiences and know when they see that Quiddy icon that they can connect the data about them into their personal data estate and feed their own self-sovereign AIs, achieve their own economic aims, but not by opting out and saying, I don't want to do business with you anymore, Nike, or American Express, mm-hmm. or whoever. No, saying, Give me a prospective feed of the information about me that you're persisting for my own aims. Sharing, basically, it's part of a sharing economy that brings that can bring wealth and health uh, to to individual data subjects. So, uh, Equidium and the Quitty. Uh, is is uh, integral to these ideas. What Equidium Health is doing, I mentioned earlier about infrastructural additions to um, corporations and governments' way of uh, how they custody their okay. enterprise data estates and how they can activate empowerment uh, and improve their compliance and security postures. That's what we're doing right now today uh, at, at Equidium Health. It, so we're, we're we're making it possible for data custodians to provide more agency and privacy and dignity to their patients, their members, their mm-hmm. customers, whomever those are. In the, future, in the future, Equidium Health is building something very ambitious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in the future, there will be a release of a product that will be the first um infrastructure stack for the for the person and wow. the person that infrastructure stack will interface with what we're in, we're putting in enterprises so the idea is the identity the consent the interoperability between you the person and endless numbers of corporations is assured by this outfitting you not only with a self-sovereign identity but but the entire apparatus to use that to, to coalesce and curate your personal data estate and use that to train self-sovereign AIS that you can trust that will help you achieve all of your goals, prosperity, health, etc, while preserving your privacy in a verifiable way. Wow,
0: that is incredibly exciting. I'm very excited for that product to come out. Um, yes,
2: you are. I'm so glad to hear that. Thank so you
0: mean, this, yeah, you. this is incredible. Like I, we completely understand it. Like like Jack was saying, it's so nice yeah. to have validation from actual industry leaders about the kind of the, the, the theoretical and academic conversations that me and Jack have. So yeah, we we let us be the, the guinea pigs of this. We'll use it straight away, 100. Um, percent Take my money and my data, please. <laughs> <laughs> Just Thank have it all. <laughs> I was going to say. So, when you're having these these conversations right now with these data custodians, do, is there like, are you seeing trends? Are they all asking the same questions? Do they all have the same reservations? Are they all quietly optimistic in the same way? Like, what are the the conversations look like right now?
2: They're very different by region of the world. Um, okay. For example, uh, in the United States, uh, enterprise data custodians usually first express. Americans don't really care about their privacy. So this isn't really that interesting because everybody opts into everything. No one really cares. And uh, a privacy first kind of um, approach falls completely flat, uh, even though we have some evidence, some peer reviewed research that's been published, that that's actually not the truth. There is that perception that Americans don't care about privacy. Uh, So in in the U.S. market, it's much more about data liquidity. It's about you have business problems, scientific challenges that are locked up in enterprise data silos, almost setting the individual completely outside. But you can't share data X with party Y uh, unless you have a, a consent to do so. Unless it's de-identified, well, we don't want it to be de-identified. We want full full integrity data. So, so in that, um, a lot of the discussion is centered on how can how can a, an enterprise data custodian change the way that they administer consents to make them dynamic, granular, enforceable, mm-hmm. automatable, etc. So that's very, that's, that's going very well. It's, it's, it's a very big set of problems is very dull to the individual, but, but those, those individual experience happens through their portals, their mobile Mm -hmm. apps. So it's our tech embedded within Mm -hmm. now, now Europe, very different, very different. Um, It's all about privacy. There is such a passion for the reclamation of power around the individual. How dare Mm -hmm. you hijack my life and my identity and monetize it without my knowledge or consent? I say no, and I say Mm -hmm. it loudly, and we will fine you an an enormous amount of money. We will shut you down in the European Union. There is Mm -hmm. like real passion among the entire regulatory apparatus and the citizenry. And the, Mm. and it's, you, you almost can't get past the privacy conversation because the level of intensity is so high, um, Mm. where, you know, until it's, it's this kind of mentality of, I want everything shut down until I can have every assurance that all of my rights are being respected. Mm. So, 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 uh, it's a, it's a different, it's a, it's a different dynamic, um, Fortunately, our strategy is equally applicable. It's just kind of which thing do you lean into most in a dialogue? (laughs) But but it's very, um, it's the same technologies and the same strategy that fulfill those different priorities. And it's it's, uh, one challenge, a little bit of an asymmetry when you talk about this whole um, individually oriented architecture like a stack around the human an actual Mm -hmm. person infrastructure who pays for that Mm. who's supposed to pay for that like Mm -hmm. so we know jack you the person shouldn't probably have to pay for it in fact you're going to earn from it by monetizing your your data estate and your nation is probably spending lots of money on your health care so things that help you be healthier They're already being paid for and they're just not working very well. So there's every reason why the individual doesn't make sense to be the one to pay for it. Okay. But who does, who pays for it? Who am I actually selling that product to? Hmm. And and those are some of my biggest business challenges Mm -mm. today in, you know, August of 2023, I hope you you might be willing to have me back in a, in a couple of years or even sure. once a year to let you know, you know, how it's going or something. Every
0: week as- at this rate, I think. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but but it's, uh yeah, it's tricky to sell an information product, a digital product to a party that won't have access to it, can't use it. For example, if you want a corporation or a government to pay for it, okay, but they can't Mm -hmm. see it. It's not their cloud accounts. It's not their data. It's not their infrastructure. Uh It belongs to, it it has to be without any conflict of interest around the actual person. So getting, you can sell things to them that they're going to run in their infrastructure. Sure. Mm. But now you, the citizen, whether you're afraid of governments or you're afraid of corporations, either way, (laughs) (laughs) it's, it's not the same thing. So it's, it's, it's an interesting challenge.
1: Yeah, but it seems to me, like when uh, just listening to you speak, that all of this is moving us in general from a kind of reactive care-driven healthcare system to a more preventative one. So you're using your your self-sovereign AI to identify health problems earlier based on the high quality of data. You know, So for me, it seems like there should be quite a strong incentive there for governments, you know, like, like us in the UK with the NHS, the amount they spend on reacting to health problems, right, and, and, and trying to solve the problem after the fact, when in fact, you know, if you use this kind of system, maybe you could cut it out of the source for lots of issues. That To me, that seems like quite a good driver. Is, is that is that one of the ways you could, you, you're you going to be selling this to the
2: people? Uh, yes, but think about the, the, the flow of capital and the structures So right now, NHS is thinking about how to do all these things. You know, there are policy measures, there are major works in progress, but the NHS or any government struggles to deploy capital to build an information system that is not under their own governance. Yeah. So that means that standard kinds of procurement approaches that place the system under the jurisdiction of a government agency are kind of non-starters so mm-hmm. so you have to think about different kinds of structures like large scale grant facilities for example that that can offer a level of oversight but but a, but a distinctive infrastructural boundary and you still need a lot of things inside the infrastructure of the governments of the corporations to facilitate this but getting but a person an individual can aggregate more information about themselves curate it to a quality standard far more than any any government or corporation ever could this is known this is self evident however that 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 person infrastructure that that hi i'm a human and this is my it infrastructure that is part of running my life right that mm-hmm. hasn't been brought about yet we're still not quite there and equidium health is pushing hard to bring <laughs> to bring that about
0: that's incredibly exciting. I think um, you, you've mentioned a, a lot of different aspects right now of emerging technologies like AI, Web3, data sovereignty, identity, self-sovereign to an extent. Um, you know, if Heather Lee Flannery controls the world and the direction of everything we do in the future, what does that future look like in healthcare specifically? How do you imagine, say, in 20, 30 50 years time that people will interact with you know healthcare devices and all the technology you're talking about?
2: Thank you, Alec. I like fantasizing about being queen of the world. That's that that's fun. Uh, so I would say that by, by 2035, by 2035 uh, we should be able to have extremely precise predictions about the potential onset and progression of any disease from rare conditions to prevalent conditions. We should be able to have hyper-optimized, totally individualized guidance that infiltrates every aspect of our lives but is within our control. So that means what time am I getting up? Am I exercising? How am I performing at my job? Am mm-hmm. I being the kind of mother I want to be this week? Is, you know, all of, all of those goals are all living in this massive personal data estate that is growing richer every day, such that the predictions and the optimizations are better and continuously improving around the individual. It it should mean uh, also that we have resolved health equity challenges that allow even people in poverty to govern a personal data estate as the mechanic to create an alternative to a universal basic income and help pull them out of poverty. This this flow, this new data economy can be healing to individuals, families, communities, and the world. And the, the level of prediction and optimization that, that we can conduct in this model is absolutely staggering. There will be very few personal or community or national goals that cannot be placed on paths to optimization. And we should finally start seeing movement in the healthcare and life sciences endpoints that we've been working so hard toward. And Mm -hmm. one thing I I wanted to remark upon, I, I know I've been saying a lot of things that could be construed as criticism of the industry, the healthcare and life sciences industry as structured today. My criticism is of the structure, not of the individual actors. Mm-hmm. I am blessed to know and collaborate with people in the public sector and the private sector all around the world that are in positions of great empowerment and leadership. And they are, they, they are incredible human beings doing amazing work mm-hmm. in every stakeholder group in, the, in mm-hmm. all the big pharmas that people love to vilify, in, in the provider organizations that people love to complain about, you know, in the, gov- in the governments that everyone's angry at, you know, there's so, yeah. um, the individual stakeholder groups that choose to focus on this field, they do it because they're intrinsically motivated. Mm-hmm. We can fix structural problems that unleashes the already incredible energy going into fixing human health. Uh, mm-hmm. So I just I don't yeah. want to be interpreted as blaming any stakeholder group that's in the industry right now.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a really lovely note and a hopeful one to to kind of draw us near to a close here. I'm conscious we we don't want to keep you any longer from fulfilling this brilliant vision of yours, <laughs> but we do have <laughs> we do have two very very brief questions we like to ask all our guests at the end. They're very quick, one word, one sentence answers. Okay. And we want to compare over time how how they go. So. The first one is, in just one sentence, what is Web three to you?
2: Web three is a social and cultural movement uh, flowing out of Web two, where information about us was owned and custodied and profit upon by all the parties that generated the information. Web three is is this cultural social movement about the individual being able to claim and control information about them uh, in a way that can materially affect the structure of society.
1: That's another great answer. I expected nothing less after after (laughs) this hour. And my second question is, if you could choose any person, they can be alive or dead, to sit down and discuss Web3 with, who would that be and why?
2: Mahatma Gandhi because his philosophy uh, that, that led to India's independence and in large part, the end of the era of colonialism on earth occurred without violence from a place of positivity. It involved education, it created powerful movements that were anchored in goodness and justice and right. And I am greatly inspired by his contributions to the world. And I believe that kind of energy is needed now with what we're trying to do. And I could sure learn a thing or two (laughs) from uh, Mr. Gandhi if I had an opportunity.
0: Wow, that is very powerful. I'm glad we ended on that. Um, Thank you so much for joining us, Heather. And thank you to those people listening, wherever you may be. And join us next time as we untangle a little more of Web3. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Untangling Web 3, produced by Emma Camilleri.
1: Don't forget to send us your thoughts, questions and comments on social media. And be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast provider to catch the next episode. See you next time to untangle a little bit more of Web 3.
0: The views we express here are our own and do not reflect the views of our employers.